Do you ever read a narrative and think, what exactly am I supposed to do with this episode in the Bible? What did I just read? And how can I make, how can I make sense of it as a Christian reading an old passage like this? It would even be understandable for readers who believe in the truthfulness of Scripture and the holiness of God to still come to a story like verses 32 to 36 and scratch their heads and think, how should I think about a story of a man who gathers sticks on the Sabbath and was stoned outside the camp by Israelites who received a divine command to stone him outside the camp? And to get at this story, I want to look first at when it occurs in the chapter. Verses 32 to 36 are part of Numbers 15. And right before our passage this morning, there are two verses that address what is known as high-handed rebellion against the Lord. Verse 31 says, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, That person reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. The placement of the story this morning matters. Verses 32 to 36 illustrate what verses 30 and 31 warned about. The episode we're reading today is an example of what verses 30 and 31 do not leave in the theoretical atmosphere, but rather a real story, a historical moment in the life of the Israelites. Verses 30 and 31 are about a person who reviles the Lord, and verses 32 to 36 are an episode about such a person. Verses 30 to 31 are about someone who rejects the commandments of the Lord in high-handed defiance and rebellion. And verses 32 to 36 are about an episode of such a person. That, That means verses 30 to 31 help us as we get into the story. There is a judgment upon a rebel Israelite. And in verse 32, we're told the setting is that it happens while they're in the wilderness. Well, it doesn't get more specific than that. They're going to be in the wilderness for many years. And if you said, okay, I would like to know like when during those 40 years of wilderness wandering that story is given. There's not a more specific time other than the previous judgment that's been given in Numbers 13 and 14. It occurs after a pronouncement of wandering in the wilderness for many years. So it is while that's happening. While they are in the wilderness and in these decades a rebellious generation dies out. During these years, verses 32 to 36 take place as an example of a rebel in the wilderness. It tells us there are some Israelites who find a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. The problem is not what he was doing, but when he was doing it. When he was doing it, and even why. Gathering sticks at first might seem rather insignificant, very innocent. It would be quite understandable if someone comes to this Bible story and thinks, okay, all of that that took place afterward for gathering sticks? Because you think, okay, what is the seriousness of this? So it might seem at first glance to be rather insignificant activity, even innocent. But we need to look closely to understand what's going on and why the God who is holy and righteous 
never would overreact, never would administer a disproportionate punishment, but rather we might look at this as insignificant and that's the wrong place to start. Because if we look at this and say, this doesn't seem rather serious, it seems insignificant or innocent, then we are not going to track the logic of the narrative to where we see, I understand why this rebellion ends this way. Why would a man be outside gathering sticks? What would he be doing with them? The answer is that he's gathering sticks to build a fire. And there's reason to understand it this way. Why would he be gathering sticks to build a fire? The answer is to cook and to eat. A reader might wonder, well, maybe he's just building a fire to stay warm. But the reader would be forgetting what earlier has been taught to us. God's presence is with the Israelites in two very prominent and visible ways. His presence in the Israelite camp is by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And one of the effects of this massive demonstration and manifestation of God's presence is the coolness of the cloud and the warmth of the fire over the people. The Lord's presence is a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. The Lord is present with his people and he sustains his people, which means the gathering of the sticks is to make a fire for cooking. There are Israelites who see what this man is doing, and we don't know what tribe the man is from. There are 12 tribes, and they're situated three on each side of the rectangular tabernacle. But these 12 tribes do have someone from among them who is doing this activity. Wherever he's from, this is not an activity that can be done in secret. If he's out gathering sticks, he's going to be seen. And if he makes a fire... The light and the smoke from that aren't going to be hidden either. How could it be? The problem is when and why the man is gathering sticks. He's gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. The Israelites were to observe the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day of the week. They were to rest from their normal activities. They were not to go even and gather food because the Lord had been miraculously providing it. Not only does the reader of Scripture need to remember the pillar of cloud and fire by night to bring not only guidance and and presence to the people, but also coolness and warmth to guide and sustain them in their encampment, we also know He provides manna every morning. He provides manna on the first day of the week, the second day of the week, the third day of the week, the fourth day of the week, the fifth day of the week, and twice as much on the sixth day. So that on the seventh day, there is no need to go and gather food. The Lord has been faithful to provide. This is what the reader of Scripture must keep in mind coming to this story. On the Sabbath day, people would eat what was given and gathered the day before. What's going on then when we come to verse 32? Because of the Lord's presence over the camp, the Israelites are not going to lack warmth. Because of the Lord's provision to the camp, the Israelites are not going to lack food. Verse 32 tells us a man is doing this not because the Lord hasn't provided. Not because he's been unfaithful, the Lord that is. The man is rather responding to the Lord's faithfulness with unfaithfulness. We need to get a little more information about the story. In verse 33, it tells us those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it hadn't been made clear what should be done to him. 
Here are these people on the seventh day. And if you're among the tent dwellings at this point, you're at the door or you're outside and you're enjoying the Sabbath rest. All of a sudden you look and you're hitting the shoulder of the person next to you. Look at this. Look at this. Do you see what I'm seeing? Is he, what is he doing? He's gathering sticks. You can imagine a sort of panic begin to spread among observers. What is he doing? Because everybody knows it's the Sabbath day. The Israelites approach the man and they apprehend the man. We're not given any information about questions and answers, any conversation that takes place. All of that is unknown to us. No doubt would have happened. Maybe even starting with, what do you think you're doing? (laughs) Don't you know what day it is? You know? The Israelites approach the man, and this signals they understand the circumstances to be serious. They don't stay where they are. They go to him. And they bring him to Moses and Aaron. And I take that to mean that whatever is implied between that, there is a carelessness and a shamelessness and an unrepentance that must now be dealt with. He's not brought only to Moses and Aaron. It also tells us he's brought to the whole congregation, which seems to speak of a broad number of Israelites. It can't obviously be every individual Israelite, but a a, a wide amount to where we can say the congregation is now present to bear witness. The man's been gathering sticks publicly. What happens next will take place publicly. He's brought to Moses and Aaron in verse 33, a large amount of Israelites as well. In verse 35, the Lord says to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Well, here's the pronouncement then. The Lord says the man shall be put to death, but by what means? By means of the congregation's activity against the man. So here's a sentence of death. It's hanging over this rebel. And we have to think about the Sabbath teachings that have already been revealed and known by the people of Israel. First of all, there's the fourth commandment itself. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But there's information right after the fourth commandment is given. We're told in Exodus 20 verse 9, Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, And it finishes off this instruction by appealing to the Israelites to consider all about their lives that would labor in their household and outside their household, people and animals. It is the Sabbath day to the Lord. So in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, they have heard what they then pledged to follow in Exodus 24, the covenant sealed at Sinai. One of those commandments that they pledged to follow was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then if you go later in Exodus, you come to Exodus 31, 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For it's a sign. This, This language is key. It is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath. It is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, Exodus 31.14 says, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now we've heard then a commandment about the Sabbath day in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment. We've heard some expansion on that in Exodus 31. Not only reiterating the commandment, but warning of death. 
for those who would profane the Sabbath day. Now, to profane the Sabbath day is not to do something accidentally on the Sabbath, haphazardly or ignorantly, but rather profaning the Sabbath is a deliberate, rebellious rejection of the covenant goodness and wisdom of God. We have to keep this clear in our minds because a lot about the Sabbath has been said before we get to Numbers 15. And if we read Numbers 15 without several other pieces of the puzzle clear, we might look at this and say, the man was just gathering sticks. The problem was not him gathering sticks. That was not what was the foremost and deepest issue. If you go then to Exodus 35, you see the following. Exodus 35, 2. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Reiterating the commandment, reiterating the penalty of death. But then, Exodus 35, 3. You shall kindle no fire at your dwelling place on the Sabbath day. So somebody said, well, you know, wait a second, though. Does that, how much does that really cover these very Sabbath commandments and not doing much labor? Maybe gathering sticks and building a fire is totally fine. The law of God is not unclear. It is not unclear. It is not subtle. It is not vague. It is clear. The last quotation tells us some interesting things then. We have seen, in light of these Exodus quotes, people are to rest on the Sabbath. Violating it, profaning it will lead to death. And violating the Sabbath will include kindling fire at your dwelling place. And that's done by gathering wood. If the Sabbath is a sign for the people of God, part of their obedience to God and rejoicing in His faithfulness and provision will be honoring the Sabbath, not begrudgingly, rejoicing in God, keeping the day holy unto God, remembering the Lord. They want to do this as God's people. If Israelites rejected the fourth commandment, that was tantamount to rejecting the covenant relationship with Yahweh. He said, this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. There would be no need to gather sticks on the Sabbath. One does not just fall out of one's tent, trip, gather sticks along the way and say, I don't know how that happened. The gathering of sticks is done directly and consciously in rejection of the Lord. The Israelites knew God had provided clear instructions and incentives and warnings. By resting on the Sabbath, they they would demonstrate trust in Yahweh. He provides for them, cares for them, sustains them. Rejecting the Sabbath commandment means they refuse to trust in the Lord. His faithfulness does not influence them. His commandments do not compel them. Those who reject the Sabbath day are lawbreakers. And here is a man who knew not to gather wood and did it anyway. He knew the penalty would be death and he did it anyway. He knew specifically they should not kindle a fire on the Sabbath day and he did it anyway. The story is about high-handed rebellion in Israel's camp. It's more than just about sticks. And we've got to see the gravity of this and the utter foolishness of this. If this man was rejecting God's covenant, but then nothing happened as a result, what do you think that might communicate to the rest of the Israelite tribes? That God gives commands He doesn't enforce. He gives warnings and He doesn't follow through. They can hear God's commandments, but really when it comes down to it, they can just do whatever they want. The situation in Numbers 15 is serious for this man. 
not only because of his individual rebellion, but he's part of a camp where they are together corporately to follow Yahweh and to keep his law and to worship him from the heart. His spiritual rebellion against Yahweh will not just affect him. He is setting an example of rebellion. Here are others who are watching him do that. And I wonder if anybody else said, well, he's over there doing it. We can go and get some wood and sticks too. The danger here is even far more than just the individual. This man is testing the Lord. He is acting as if God's holy commandments are without authority. He is acting as if transgression will not affect his life. The Lord pronounces physical death as judgment for the covenant-rejecting, shamelessly transgressing, publicly defiant man. The story is not about someone who died just because they gathered sticks. Rather, his action is symbolic of a high-handed rebellion against Yahweh. The death of this rebel, rebel is because he despises the Lord. He flaunts his rebellion and he tramples on the covenant sign of the Sabbath day. And he doesn't care. In verse 36, all the Israelites, the congregation brought him outside the camp and they stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 36 reports the obedience of the Israelites. I cannot imagine verse 36 would have been easy. What a heavy and serious moment. Outside the camp is the place of the defiled and the unclean. When it tells us they brought him outside the camp, that's because a death was to take place. And uncleanness, ritually, would result from contact with the dead in the camp. You couldn't approach the tabernacle. It was not to defile the encampment of the Israelite tribes. So where do they go to apply the penalty? They go outside the camp. And they stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. No hint of repentance from the covenant breaker. No contrition that is reported. No intercession from Moses. We see a Sabbath breaker's flagrant violation of the law. And we hear the Lord's pronouncement of the consequence. And in verse 36, the consequence is carried out. It's a heavy moment. A punishment has been applied. And it's an earthly symbol of the much more serious spiritual condition and condemnation that belongs to the wicked. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings ruin. The Israelite camp will be stronger spiritually for realizing that rejecting the living God is folly to the uttermost. The Sabbath violator had believed the whisper of the evil one from Genesis 3. You will not surely die. Has God really said? And yet this man in his flagrant and bold rejection of Yahweh sows one thing and then reaps the penalty. For a person to reject the covenant commandments is to serve something else in the place of God. In other words, if a heart profanes the Sabbath day, that heart is seeking something other than God himself. If the heart profanes and rejects the covenant sign between the Israelites and the Lord, then what is it that that heart worships? The man would be rejecting the true worship of God by spurning the commands of God. To reject the Sabbath comes from a heart of false worship. Which means you can't break the fourth commandment without breaking the first one first. 
And the Israelites need to remember the commands of the Lord. That He has made them to know Him and to delight in Him and be satisfied by His grace and mercy and presence. They need to hope in His deliverance. They need to submit to His good authority. They need to know He is good and holy and righteous. And that sin brings ruin and destruction. And the rebellion against Yahweh is folly. His judgments are upright. All His ways are perfect and just. And because the Lord is holy, His people should be holy. They've been set apart to know Him. And then in verses 37 and following, instructions are given to Moses. So that the people of Israel would remember the commandments of the Lord. They're to do the opposite of what the Sabbath breaker does. The Sabbath breaker is rejecting the commandments of the Lord. The Israelites are to be submitting to the commandments of the Lord. It needs to be upon their minds and their hearts. Things that would prompt and provoke remembrance within them. That they would be a people walking the path of God's words and not rejecting God's words. So in verse 37, the Lord says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout all their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Now, the remembrance commands here, or the remembrance purpose here, is associated with an alteration to their garments. So it's something that's going to be visibly worn. Sometimes what people wear communicates something about them, something they belong to, Something that's important to them. I mean, haven't you ever seen a college student that wears their college colors or logo? Or even sports fans wearing jerseys and colors of their favorite teams. Uh, sometimes you can look at somebody's garment and say, okay, I can, I can associate this person with, with this. Uh, so we know clothing can work this way. And the Lord wants the people to publicly and without reserve and boldly associate themselves with the commandments of God. And to prompt their minds to remember His commands that they would walk in them, delight in them, love them from the heart. And so a way of external prompting is introduced. That they would make tassels on the corners of their garments. Now the Israelites, we know from archaeological and ancient Near Eastern history that the Israelite garments were multiple in layers from time to time. But there was a particular outer garment sometimes considered something like a shawl that was rectangular shaped with a hole in the middle for a head. And it would, your head would fit through it and you'd have one side fall over the front and one over the back and there would be four corners. And at the ends of these corners were to be crafted some kind of fringe or tasseled or loose uh, placement on these four corners with one single blue cord or thread in each of the four. So speak to the people and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. The goal was to say that this tassel with the blue cord is like an extension of me as a person. And just as the tassels were to prompt remembrance of the commands of God, I'm to have a life lived in the path of the commands of God. His wisdom and the life of His covenant. So this garment in view is likely an outer garment that could be removed and placed on, removed and placed on with other garments layered beneath. And these four corners would each have a blue thread. Now, why blue? That's quite specific. It didn't say, in other words, whatever color you happen to have in your tent or dwelling place, 
uh, whatever you can most conveniently come across. Instead, blue is the color. In the ancient world, blue was a symbol for royalty. Blue is a symbol for royalty, and it's associated with the tabernacle itself. Blue was the color of loops that held up curtains in front of the tabernacle. The adornment of the high priest himself, the garments of the high priest, had the color blue in them in Exodus 28. Sheets or coverings of blue were part of the transportation of different elements of the tabernacle during the march of the people. The Ark of the Covenant had an outer covering of blue during the march. Other elements within the tabernacle would have a layer of blue and other layers on top of that for transportation. Now, if the Israelites are to have a thread of blue, here's what I think this is suggesting. There is a suggestion of royal and priestly tones to this. That's what it would have stood out to mean for the ancient world. And for the Israelites whose priesthood with the high priest and whose tabernacle in their sacrificial system had blue associated with it. It wasn't always easy to come by, which is why the whole garment is not made out of blue, but a thread. It would mean that even the poorest of the land who might not be able to buy the most expensive of dyes or acquire so easily the most elaborate and expansive of threads, they could get a thread in four corners. It was something that would designate each of the Israelites and as a nation, what were they called? They are a kingdom of priests. They belong to Yahweh. They're not all of the tribe of Levi. And they are not all of the tribe of Judah from which the king would come. But they are as a nation a kingdom of priests. And the blue thread reminds them who they are. They belong to Yahweh who is their king. And they belong to the Israelite camp through which mediating priests minister and regulate sacrifices. So he says I want you to put four tassels in the corners of your garment. I want you to put a color of blue thread in each corner. These were people who belonged to Yahweh. I I think that what this means is, I want you to even publicly and without reluctance, remind each other and anyone else you come across, you belong to the Lord. In verse 39, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you're inclined to whore after. They're to announce by their clothing who they belong to. And the main purpose here is for their remembrance. To look at and remember and then do. Those are the verbs right there. To remember by noticing the tassels that they would then do the commandments. So seeing or looking at the tassel, remembering the commandments and following them. You know, the alternative from doing the commandments of God is to go what is in line with their own preferences or subjective reasoning. Their own, let's call it their heart and eyes, as the writer does. Following after their own heart or eyes. If they're not following the commandments of the Lord, what other authority are they really left with? One pastor put it this way, that if we are not walking according to the commandment of the scriptures, or to the authority of the scriptures, we are a slave to whatever sounds right to us. And the danger is that the Israelites would be in the camp with the presence and word of God in their midst, but following after their own heart and eyes. You know, an example of someone following their own heart and eyes is the guy we read about in verses 32 to 36. What's he doing out there outside his dwelling, gathering sticks on the Sabbath day? He's doing what he wants. 
He is boldly going where his heart and eyes are taking him. Not the commandments of the Lord. His own heart and eyes. This tassel or these tassels should be for you to look and remember the commandments of the Lord and follow them. And that's not because these individual threads had Ten Commandments written on them in fine print or something. It's to symbolize what would prompt the mind, yes, who do I belong to? To remind themselves each day and during the course of their lives, who has redeemed me from Egypt? Who is leading me to a land of promise? To whom do I belong? They're rehearsing through these tassels and blue cords the truths of the covenant news. Now, in verse 39, he says not to follow after your own heart and eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. In other words, they have within themselves a vulnerability leading to unfaithfulness. And it seems that by default, what they should recognize that lurks within them is a proneness to wander. That if they were a people who go astray, that's not surprising in a sinful world. But rather, it's the kind of thing sinners do in defiance of divine authority. They go after their own heart and eyes. And therefore, they are seeking after that with this image of unfaithfulness communicated with whoring after. Inclining to whore after means if they're in covenant with the Lord, their own eyes and hearts are not going to be the reliable guide to follow God. What do they need to know God? What do they need to follow Him faithfully? They need to know and love His Word. The man in verses 32 to 36 didn't love the words of God. He did what his heart and eyes seemed best to do at the time. So in verse 40 he says, So shall you remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. That means they have to remember what is true. So that they can live in a way that is set apart. Because their heart and eyes are not going to be the reliable guides to live a set apart life unto Yahweh. How will they be set apart and holy? You shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. The discipline of remembrance and the life of holiness go together. In verse 41, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You see, the passage ends this morning with a reminder who God is to them and what they are to Him. He is the delivering God and they are the people redeemed. They've been brought out of the land of Egypt, the land of bondage and condemnation, the land of their slavery and oppression, and they're heading to an inheritance That he has so graciously promised and will by his power accomplish. And as God, he has authority and right to say what is pleasing to him. And he gives them these instructions and he says, I'm the Lord your God. He's the one giving them. These are not instructions that a committee got together and said, you know what, we should probably add to the garments. They're quite bland. Here's a couple things we could do to adjustment, uh, to adjust. We can even make a spiritual purpose out of this. This comes from the Lord their God. The God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They need to be warned against following their internal desires and hearts, which may be disordered because of sin, leading them astray from his goodness and wisdom. Their feelings and what appeals to their eyes are not reliable sources of what is good and wise. 
What is a reliable source and guidance to what is good and wise? The words and commands of God. And they have to be reminded of this. And in this way, friends, the truth hasn't changed, has it? We need to be people shaped by the word. And the pastor I quoted earlier is right. That if we're not confident in Scripture's authority, we're a slave to whatever sounds right to us. We can be just as easily prone to stray due to our following our eyes and hearts, ignoring the good wisdom and commands of God. If we believe his commands are wise and his words are good, then that is the source of our guidance and wisdom. In the new covenant established by the Lord Jesus on the cross, we are a people who've been redeemed, not out of Egypt. The Lord Jesus doesn't say to his new covenant people, I am the Lord your God who's redeemed you out of Egypt. But we've been redeemed from something more serious and grave indeed. From slavery to sin and from condemnation. Here is a man in verses 32 to 36 who disregarded God's word and profaned the Sabbath day. But the people of God are not to operate this way. We follow the new covenant work of Christ on the cross. We believe and receive what he has accomplished who has delivered us from redemption, uh, by redemption from sin and condemnation. We have forgiveness forever in him. His substitutionary work has accomplished on that old rugged cross what the old covenant could not provide the people. And we are saying as well that when Jesus died for us, he went outside the camp to do so. He didn't die in the temple. He was taken outside the city, which is where the unclean acts of death and punishment were taken. The soldiers removed Jesus' garments and gambled for them. In Matthew 27, 35, it tells us when they crucified him, they divided his garments Casting them, uh, casting lots for them. His garments. Think about that for a moment. What are the sort of things Jesus would have worn? What would Jesus have worn before the cross? Well, Jesus is a faithful Israelite. He kept the laws of the Torah. And he would have honored the instruction of Numbers 15, 37 to 41. About fringes on the outer garment at the four corners with a blue thread in each. In fact, one of the statements of the miracles of Jesus has a reference to the hem or fringes of his garment. It tells us in Matthew 9 verse 20 that behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. That's equivalent to the Old Testament concept of the tassels at the corners where the blue thread would be woven. Jesus as a faithful Israelite would have exactly the kind of things that were to prompt the remembrance of the commandments of God for the Israelite nation. In all four Gospels, we're told that at the scene of the cross, the garments of Jesus are an object of interest to the soldiers. We learn from the Gospels that they take Jesus' garments and they gamble for them at the foot of the cross. So this means somebody would have taken the cloak of Christ with four tassels and blue cords at the corners. And we know that on the cross, the garment of tassels and cords has been removed. But it's not because Jesus was an unfaithful Israelite. In fact, the garments are removed from Christ and he hangs there in the place of sinners. Behold the paradox of God's plan. The faithful son. Not the unfaithful son. Here hangs a man on the cross who is the very son of God, remembering and keeping all God's commandments. On the cross, he establishes a new covenant. The practice of tassels and blue cords does belong to the age of the Old Covenant. It wasn't a practice reiterated in the New. It's not rooted in the moral law of God. When Jesus commissions his disciples in Matthew 28, he doesn't tell them, go therefore and make tassels with blue cords. 
But he does say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. We're not a people who no longer care about the commandments and words of the Lord. We learn that as the disciples of the Lord, we care about what God has said. But it is interesting that with the commandment of what is associated with teaching and observing and remembering and the presence of Christ with his people is the public administration of baptism. That here in Matthew 28, one of the ways we say to others, I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to me and he's delivered me not out of Egypt, but from sin and condemnation is we are obedient to his commission to be baptized We're baptized and we take the Lord's Supper. And why do we do these things? We do these things corporately. We do these things so that we can see one another and know the truths of what we are communicating. These are public means of confession and belonging. Where we are saying, I belong to my beloved, the Christ. And he belongs to me. We do these things because we are the people of God, united by the Spirit in the Son with everlasting life. Let's stand together as we pray.